You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is getting to yes and. So my guest today is Sally Jenkins, who began her second stint at The Washington Post in 2000. After spending the previous decade working as a book author and as a magazine writer, she was named the nation's top sports columnist in 2001, 2003, 2010, and 2011 by the Associated Press Sports Editors. In 2013, she won a first place award from the AP for an investigative series co-written with Rick Maisie on medical care in the NFL titled Do No Harm. Uh, Jenkins is the author of 12 books, four of which were New York Times bestsellers, most recently the number one Sum It Up with legendary basketball coach Pat Summit. And her latest book, which is fantastic, is called The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About the Art of Decision Making. Enjoy the pod. Sally Jenkins, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's interesting. I, I didn't think about this originally when I was doing my notes for the show, but it just dawned on me as I was looking them over before we started taping that I started Second City in 1988, and my job has been watching young talent develop and go. And we're talking Stephen Colbert, Steve Carell, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Keegan Michael Key. It goes on and on and on. Incredibly great performance. And you write in the prologue of your book, quote, the sports writer's seat is the best in the house, not because it comes with free popcorn, though it often does, or because it has a better angle on the big game than the average ticket buyer can procure, which it doesn't always. What makes the seat worth coveting is its unpurchasable proximity to greatness in practice. I've not been a fool enough to waste that. I take notes. When did you start taking notes? Right at the beginning? A uh, long time ago. Well, yeah, but I didn't take the kind of... Um smart notes that I should have, uh, wow. the, the rubber hit the road, the rubber met the road, um, in, uh, the, the 1980s when I was at sports illustrated magazine and I got assigned to do a profile of Billie Jean King mm. and how she was trying to help Martina Navratilova win a ninth, uh, record ninth Wimbledon title. I spent a lot of time with Billie Jean and I watched her work with Martina and I talked to everybody and I sat down to write the story and realized I was choking my guts out. Uh, mm. in, in front of this blank screen. And, uh, and I thought, well, that's great. Here you are writing a story about this great uh, pressure performer and, um, and you're, you're cracking under the pressure. And so I started to think about, uh, I thought, you know, if you're half as serious about your craft um, and what you're doing, you know, why wouldn't you invest half as much of your 
time and attention and how to do it better under pressure as an athlete does or a great coach does. So I really started thinking about it carefully back then in the 80s. And I started investigating pressure more. Why, when you're under pressure at a, at a keyboard, at a typewriter, at your desk, uh, does, and you're on deadline, does it get harder to type, for instance? Right. You know, why is it harder to think? Uh, you know, pressure has actual physical properties, among other mm-hmm. things. Uh, it, it acts on your body in a way that your body can kind of betray you. And so I just really started taking notes on that, you know, and uh, because I wanted to get better at my own job. Uh, partly, mm-hmm. I wanted to I wanted to rise to the moment the way an athlete does. Um, and I thought, well, is there anything in what they're doing um, that I should do? You know? Yeah, and I think what's interesting, right, is everyone feels this to a certain degree. I think the fact that you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of eyes on you, if not millions of eyes on you, obviously, you know, make, makes a bit of a difference, but, but I don't, I mean, the science on this is that I don't know how different that feels in terms of the individual pressure that individuals put on themselves when they're, when they're doing this. And one of the things I thought about this because my wife who um, has worked here forever and she's a tenured professor of comedy, she's got a new book coming, coming out. She actually just sent it in and it's called funnier. And the title relates to, dads of young aspiring comedians who come up to her and say, are you going to make my son or daughter funny? And she goes, I can't make them funny. I can make them funnier. So they have something and she will tease out the best that she can. Of course, she taught Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and they can take it all the way here, but she taught plenty of people who are now, you know, selling insurance. It's just, it's, you know, but, but the principles are, are the same. And I guess this goes to this idea that people really want to, imbue these individuals with God-given gifts. And I think they all balk at that. Yeah. I, I mean, they do. Um, I would say, I would say this, you know, it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter how talented you are. If you're, if you're cracking under pressure, okay. You mm-hmm. can, you can be funny, but you better be able to be funny on a stage in front of other people. And you better be able to write jokes on deadline. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and you, you better, you better be able to express yourself pretty well under an evaluative, uh, critical eye right um and so so there are aspects of this that really it doesn't matter what you do uh there are aspects of performance under pressure pressure is the most common experience in the world and another really common experience is failure yeah and two things that athletes and coaches can really teach us a lot about are uh, pressure and failure uh they teach us how to deal with them you know most people who have to make decisions or who have to perform under pressure, do it behind closed doors, you know, mm-hmm. as you point out. Um, but we all, there is a, a, an extent to which we do have to perform under pressure in some respect. And we're all going to meet with setbacks somewhere along the way. And most people, like we don't get to investigate how like Bob Iger makes decisions for Disney or how Bob Iger behaves when he's under pressure, trying to decide whether to do a deal. Um, Athletes and coaches perform right in front of us in real time, right? Even more than actors, okay? I mean, they're involved in in reality TV athletes. It's not fiction what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They are responding under pressure and performing under pressure right in front of our eyes. That's a tremendous advantage for somebody like me who's setting out to study uh, decision-making and performance under pressure. Yeah. I mean, I think that, yes, on actors, probably more akin to improvisers who are also working without a script. Yeah. Uh, and have to perform in that in probably a very similar period of time, right? An hour or hour and a half when you're when you're doing this sort of thing. Obvious uh, other kinds of differences. What one of the things I thought was really interesting, and you you say your dad said, um, "quote Real sports is not 
for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this, I, I wanted to sort of unpack that a little bit because I felt this idea of like the uh, sort of transformative property of games that, that we don't, because I think one of the problems we have, quite frankly, in our society is we don't treat our play serious enough. Yeah. I mean, play is how mammals learn to survive, right? Yeah. Um, So it is important, number one. Number two, um, it's a form of intelligence, you know. I mean, Howard Gardner, the great um, sociologist at Harvard who identified the different brands of intelligence, uh, you know, he he includes athletic intelligence uh, as as a form of intelligence, and it really is. uh, You know, a lot of what athletes do when they perform – are micro decisions, right? As inspired as a Tom Brady may look in the moment or a Patrick Mahomes or a Steph Curry looks when he's taking the big shot for the Golden State Warriors, those are micro decisions. When to take the shot, how to take the shot, when to let it go. Do I go to my left? Do I go to my right? And it happens in this very, very split second momentary way, but they are micro decisions. Um, There's a lot of method and practice that goes into making, you know, the right action in the moment for a great athlete. Um, it's not a fortunate burst of inspiration. It's married to method, right? Um, and it's, it's not intuition. It's, uh, it's a deep form of intelligence. And they work and work and work on it. You know, they work on the messaging system between their brain and their body and they're from their body back to their brain to make that more efficient, right? That's a lot of what athletes do is they work on the male system between the brain mm-hmm. and the body. Mm-hmm. Um, and I investigate that in the book in, in uh, chap- uh, chapters on conditioning and practice. We throw a lot of very vague terms around in sports, right? Condition yourself, you know, uh, you know, work hard in practice. Well, what does that mean? What does that stuff really mean? Um, conditioning has deep, deep, deep neurological effects that can make you uh, more cognitively aware and make your uh, executive function much more, more sharp in, in, in a moment that matters, Right. And so it's really important to understand the degree to which athletes are conditioning themselves and practicing for the big moment and understanding what those methods are, because you can borrow for them uh, from them for your own performance. I thought it was fascinating when you were writing about Michael Phelps, because I remember all these articles that would come out about, well, look at the way he's built and the kind of lung space and all, you know, like everyone's trying to figure out why him and then you break it down in terms of both a, a, a practice and coaching. And again, we're going to talk about deliberate practice, but this like getting to this real root of what it means to be successful in this. But talk a bit about what Phelps did because it's it's sort of deceptively simple, I think. Yeah. Uh, so Michael Phelps, Scientific American, set uh, actually set out to figure out if Michael Phelps's body was somehow you know genetically freakish or something. Um, and the fact is that he's six foot four. He's very tall, uh, but he's not disproportionate for his size, right? Um, and as his coach Bob Bowman told me, what made Michael great was the work. Uh, you know, he didn't have some freakish anatomical gift that he had been born with. That was a very, very, very conditioned body. Um, and Bowman told him when he was a boy, look, I think you can be an Olympian, um, but it's going to depend not on what you do, you know, in a race on Saturday, but what you do at six o'clock in the morning, you know, in practice laps on a Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was fortunate to wind up with a coach in Bob Bowman who'd been a music major in college, as well as a great collegiate swimmer. And Bowman understood um, the degree to which like a great pianist conditions uh, themselves, they internalize whole measures of music so that when it comes time to perform, they're playing with feel, right? Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. um, not just, you know, note by note. Well, he trained Phelps in the pool uh, in a similar way. Uh, Michael uh, swam a lot of laps um, to internalize uh, the rhythm that made him such a great butterflyer, for instance. Um, and by the time he's trying to break the record for the most gold medals in a single Olympics in Beijing, um, an Olympics I covered, uh, he had, was such an internalized creature that he didn't have to count. Um, you know, I asked him, like, are you counting in the pool? Like, do you count your strokes? Mm-hmm. And he said, he said, no, I'm not counting. Um, you know, he know, he knew where he was from the wall. Uh, by field. And that conditioning actually allowed him to make the single greatest decision he ever makes in his career in the 100 meter butterfly race against Michael Kavich. Uh, they're coming down the stretch and uh, it's it's fingertip to fingertip who's going to get to the wall first. And, and Phelps makes a decision in the final you know few meters of that race to take a half stroke and do what they call chop the wall as opposed to glide. Uh, you know, it's an infinitesimal difference, right? Do I glide? Am I, am I going to get the last five yards to the wall if I glide, or do I need one more half chop? A half chop can send some water back at you and actually slow you down just mm-hmm. enough. Phelps made the decision to half chop, to chop to the wall, and he wins the race by one one hundredth of a second. And it was a decision. You know, it wasn't luck, right? Yeah. It was yeah. a decision. It was a, it, and, he, and it was a conditioned. Uh, response as well. And he, so I, I really wanted to drill down on that and talk to Bowman and Phelps about that. And he suffered from social, social anxiety as well, right? Oh, per- tremendous anxiety. Uh, yeah. And also, you know, he had uh, ADHD. He was a, mm-hmm. he was an ADHD kid. Uh, you know, swimming was, was really good for his uh, attention deficit disorder. He, you know, he could bury his head in the water and the tedium and the, and the pain of, uh, you know, endurance swimming, I think probably did a lot for his, uh, for him neurocognitively um, in some of the things that he struggled with and also in coping with, um, but he had performance anxiety and, and depression. Like we all do. Anyone who's mm-hmm. trying to be really good at something has a lot of performance anxiety. And uh, you know, I mean, he look, athletes are no different from you and me. They really aren't. They are as flawed as we are. They just deal with it differently. That's they right. really do. I, what I thought was interesting about that is, is so many people we, we've discovered over the years, and we actually built a program around this, get into improv because they suffer from social anxiety. And you would think that that's kind of like, why would they do that? And like, because when you're improvising, you can't be thinking about before or after. You have to be fiercely in the moment. And your only job is to save the person across from you. And that's their only job. So that is a very wonderful place for them to live. And it's not so, and, and because in, in this work, you have to practice it over and over again, you're like, oh, this is a form of therapy. That's great. And it's funny because when I grew up and I I played all the sports, I was a soccer player. I had the coaches who yelled. I had the coaches who yelled. I was a starting center forward. We went state finals. After that, I was a junior. And I never played again afterwards because I just like, it just, I was, I was so tired of being yelled at. And, and there are different kinds of coaches now. And, you know, and I'm well acquainted because like the Phil Jackson Bulls and Steve Kerr, they all come here all the time. And those guys are, you know, big fans. And you talk about this in this, in this book. And I think in our lifetime, we've seen the shift from what was culturally thought to be the kind of coach, which was a drill sergeant to the Steve Kerrs or the pops of the world who are much more in tune with what, you know, how do I get the most out of, out of these, these folks and how do I appreciate their differences? 
Look, you, you, you know, the fact of the matter is that no great coach that I've dealt with, and I've dealt with pretty much all of them, um, yeah. including Bill Belichick, who's a very forbidding character. Um, but Bill Belichick also has um, incredible um, affection and compassion for his players as well. And it's just such a misinterpretation and such a mistake to think that you can just uh, beat people into compliance with sheer demandingness. You know, it doesn't work, quite frankly. You might get a very short-term result from it, but mostly what teams will do, any organization, this is true, they'll take you down. You know, they'll frag you. The Mm -hmm. only adults who uh, will accept being treated that way live in a barracks, okay? Um, With complex organizations, whether, you know, I don't care if it's an acting troupe or a newspaper um, or a sports team, uh, leadership is a is a is a complicated endeavor. Uh, It's an acquired skill. Largely, Uh, we tend to think about it the wrong way. We tend to think that the most aggressive, charismatic striver is the natural leader. Couldn't be further from the truth. And if you doubt that, look at Bob Iger, who's probably the most self-effacing leader of any large company in the you know, in the world um, right now. Uh, you know, all the coaches I've ever dealt with are very, very uh, generous people and extremely attuned to their people and how their people are feeling. Tom Brady said, uh, he says this in the book. He, he didn't say it to me. He said it at a conference, but I put it in the book. He said, people have to trust your intentions. If you don't care about the people you're working with as a leader, you're hosed. Because they'll turn on you. Um, Pat Riley, the president of the Miami Heat, uh, described what happens um, when it when a, an organization kind of turns on its leader. Um, everybody starts, uh, as Pat Riley said, subtly gearing down their effort, yeah, and enrolling each other in their own cycle of disappointment. And so the performance of an organization just slowly starts to erode, you know. Um, because people just aren't putting as much into it. They're very quietly in a state of, you know, minor rebellion. It's quiet quitting, right? For lack of yeah. a better term. Well, and I think the Urban Meyer situation was one that was just terrible, yeah. like that that's come out. And Matt Patricia before that. I mean, it's, it's, there's, there's a pattern there that you've seen. Yeah, I mean, you know, teams start leaking. Their assistant coaches start leaking. Players start leaking to the press. It gets around. But again, the main thing that they'll do is they'll lose, right? They'll they'll just perform poorly. I mean, every leader enacts a decision through other people. I don't care who you are. I mean, you know, even if you're emperor, uh, you know, if you're if even an emperor has to enact a certain amount of decisions through other people. Um, and so, so it's a real mistake to study leadership uh, from the top down. Uh, what matters is whether followers will will cooperate with someone, will grant them use of their energies, their best efforts and their energies to succeed. And um, no matter what you think of a Bill Belichick, whether you like him or not, he was able to get the New England Patriots to, you know, to do that seven times. So he he must have some connection with his people. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so one of the coaches that you're probably best acquainted with who was amazing was Pat Summit. And I would love to hear more about her because that that was a front row seat you had as well, right? Yeah, I mean, she was just a tremendous influence. I, I got to work with her as a as a much younger writer, and I remember thinking when I got the job to to do her uh, her book. She did a book called Reach for the Summit, which was a really a a, a autobiography, um, but it also had a lot of stuff in it about you know her her managerial style and her coaching style. And I remember thinking, you're really, really lucky and you need to pay a lot of close attention. And um, you know, you have a chance here to lift the hood uh on a Ferrari, you know, mm-hmm. and really and really understand 
what goes into leadership and what it really looks like. Cause she was the real deal, you know? And um, so I was very lucky and, um, and some things just, just stood out immediately and stayed with me the rest of my life. And uh, you know, one of them that really stands out is that uh, as a leader and as a coach, Pat never criticized a player or critiqued a team that she didn't immediately in the next breath, show them or offer them the solution right? She gave them the fix in the very next breath. So it's a real distinction, right? Um, There's a difference between criticism and critique. Mm -hmm. Uh, Critique, you know, inherently carries with it a a second half of the sentence, which is, you know, um, and this is what wasn't so great, but this is the fix here, right? This is how we're going to do it better. And Pat always, I was always struck in, you know, sitting in the back of those locker rooms, watching film sessions or listening to her talk to her team. I was always so struck by the optimism and and the promise that she offered them that there was a way to do it better and they were going to get better and, and do it better next time. You know, that was always the tone. Uh, she was as demanding as anybody you could ever meet. Um, you know, no question about it. And she could certainly was certainly a shouter on the, on the sidelines, but they trusted her, uh, you know, to the bottoms of their souls because they knew she was going to make them better, that she wasn't doing it just to, uh, lean on them or be hard on them or grind them down. She was doing it because she was building them up. And you have this quote that of hers is that she doesn't treat them all the same. She treats them all fair. Yeah. Um, what? She was very, very attuned to kids. I mean, kids had yeah. different problems. I mean, yeah. not, not just kids, players, you know, you have to understand Bill Belichick says you have to understand what someone is going through off the field, right? You have to understand where they came from. I mean, you know, in one example, um, there was a kid, uh, a wonderful player who's, I won't, whose name I won't mention, whose mother was very, very ill back home. And she had lots of younger brothers and sisters she was trying to take care of. And she was working, uh, you know, in the off season, working extra jobs to try to, uh, you know, uh, help provide for her family because her mother was so ill. I mean, you just don't lean on a kid uh, that's going through all that, uh, you know, in the same way that you're going to lean on another kid, right? You know, so um, all great coaches, all great leaders of organizations, they really, really know their people and they really, really know their people's circumstances. And they, they, uh, they offer, a, they put a real handout, you know, to people. Um, you know, every great editor I've ever had, look, you know, they don't just send a piece of copy back to me and say, write better. You need to do this better. (laughs) They show you how to fix it. They say, well, look, if you move your sixth paragraph to your third paragraph, and if you change this tense, I think it'll fix it, you know, or help it. Right. Yeah. Well, I think you also say because it's, it's not about authority, right? You talk about this, about it's about uh, getting buy-in. And and I, I had that, there was this epiphany moment I had maybe 10 years into the job here where I was like, and we, our coaches are directors who direct the shows. And when I finally realized, I'm like, oh, their job isn't to sort of dictate this is what it is. Their job is to get the most out of those six people that they've got in front of them. Whatever it is that they do, what they mean as a unit, if you do that, you're going to be fine. And it takes a, 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 a level of um, trust uh, and, and release and, and lack of control and, and seeding the need to be right. And all these things that are very human, but stand in the way of greatness. You know, like, like I can give you a good show and still have all the sort of bad qualities, but I can't get to a great show unless, unless I'm going to seed that. You know, um, one of my favorite, uh, 
things in the book is um, I talked a lot to Peyton Manning, the Hall of Fame quarterback, um, who I just covered for a long, long time. And, um, and, and Manning, people forget that Peyton Manning, uh, his third year in the NFL, his record, his one loss record was 32 and 32. And mm-hmm. he led the league in interceptions. In fact, he led the league in interceptions, I want to say, two of his first three years. And uh, Tony Dungy came in as the new head coach of the Indianapolis Colts and really realized that, that you know, even though Peyton had been born the son of Archie Manning, a Heisman Trophy winner, and had been a number one draft pick uh, or first round draft pick, that, you know, there was a, he was a guy that was struggling to fulfill his promise and struggling with insecurity and clearly had some a lot of flaws in his performance that he needed to fix. And he really needed help doing it. You know, everybody needs help. I don't care how good you are because we've all got unconscious uh, incompetencies, right? We can't see everything in our own performance. You need an evaluative eye. And one of the things that I really respect about athletes the most is that they subject themselves to that eye uh, and they look at their weaknesses much more closely than the rest of us do, much more closely. They're not nearly as thin-skinned with criticism, particularly – uh, if they're in the hands of a very good coach who knows how to critique a player and help them. What Tony Dungy did with Peyton Manning was they sat down and they looked at tape of every single interception he threw, uh, every single one. And then they went through and, and Peyton said, then we went through and we looked at another tape, which was all the interceptions that, uh, all, all the balls that I threw that should have been intercepted, but weren't. And I just got a mm-hmm. little bit lucky. Uh, mm-hmm. I had thrown the ball in the wrong place and made the wrong decision, but, you know, maybe the guy dropped the ball. Uh, and um, after that, they looked at the commonalities in all those interceptions. And one of the things they saw was that his feet were a little uh, jackhammery or, or, or not good under pressure with big defensive linemen diving at his feet. His footwork would get bad, and that was costing him some accuracy. So they designed a drill uh, where the coaches would throw big, heavy bags, sandbags and stuff at his feet uh, in practice to try to improve his footwork, right? And to get his footwork a little more solid under pressure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so it was very, very, very uh, granular, uh, you know, drill-based, uh, not just criticism, but diagnosis followed by, uh, you know, directed work to fix the problem. And that's where leaders can really, really excel. That's, that's the difference between someone who thinks they're a leader and want, thinks they want to be a leader and someone who's really good at leading and really good at coaching. So I'm a rabid Chicago sports fan, uh, but I am going to have you talk about the wet ball thing in practice. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> even, though, even though it worked out badly for my team. Mm-hmm. So this is another Peyton Manning, Tony, Tony Dungy story uh, that, uh, that Peyton told me, and he, 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 t- he tells this story very appreciatively. Dungy would, about once a week, would spray the balls with a garden hose, the practice footballs with a garden hose, and he'd throw them on the field, and he would, he would make Peyton Manning and his center Jeff Saturday practice with, a, with wet footballs. And um, the funny thing about it was that the Indianapolis Colts played in a dome, dome. right? <laughs> and so Jeff Saturday said to Peyton, why are we doing this? This is so dumb. We play in a dome. And, and Peyton said, I don't know, Jeff, you know, maybe it could get a hole in the roof or something. Mm-hmm. Well, they make it to the Super Bowl that year, which is in Miami. And Miami, generally, the weather in February is actually uh, beautiful. Uh, it's, it's unusual for it to rain. But Peyton Manning woke up the morning of the Super Bowl and opened his uh, hotel curtain. And it was a monsoon outside. I mean, it was mm-hmm. absolutely raining sideways. 
in Miami. There was a huge tropical storm. And I don't, people may remember that Prince did this epic halftime show yeah. in the rain, played Purple Rain in the rain. Well, the producers were worried that, you know, the whole time that Prince was going to get electrocuted. Uh, but um, the Colts, Manning, the minute he opened his curtain, he knew they had a tremendous advantage. And he suddenly felt, he, he felt so reassured because they had done all those wet football uh, practices. Yeah. And he knew that him and Jeff Saturday were going to be okay running the full playbook and, and, and working, uh, working through all of their play progressions, they weren't going to have to take anything out because of the rain. The Chicago Bears fumbled two quarterback uh, center exchanges that day. It was a real difference maker in the game. The Colts never fumbled. They, they ran everything they wanted to run, and, uh, and the Bears fumbled twice, and it turned out to be a difference maker in the game. And, uh, and so Manning tells that story as an example of, you know, just what a great, thoroughly prepared uh, coach uh, Dungey was and and how good Dungey was for preparing his team to meet resistance or to meet unexpected circumstances. Uh, and, and, and Manning's point was, you know, good preparation is the greatest diffuser of pressure that there is. He said, pressure is what you feel when you don't know what the hell to do. Right. Uh, and, and and I think that, that that's like a, a very simple but instructive lesson that we can all take away from these coaches and athletes when we're thinking about what we're going to have to do under pressure uh, to practice in the face of a little bit more resistance, you know, or to even just envision or, or visualize what it's going to be like to have to face you know, some unforeseen circumstances. Michael Phelps used to try to envision what he would do if his goggles filled up with water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so all these things that we've talked about seem to me to coalesce in, in, in a specific story in this book, uh, about my fellow Lake Forest College, uh, alumni, Diane Naya and, mm-hmm. uh, and her coach, Bonnie Stoll. And this is, I don't know, this felt to me like you were writing a little bit of a novel inside your book because the story is amazing. It contains everything you're talking about. And like, even though I know what happened because I followed that and I've, I've met her, I, I was on the edge of my seat. And I also thought this is going sideways and this isn't going to work. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible story and relationship. I mean, I don't, you know, uh, I don't know if people are that familiar with Diana's. I don't think they are. I don't think they are. So Diana Nyad swam from Cuba to Key West across the Strait of Florida, uh, spent uh, virtually three three full days and nights in the water. Um, and at the age of uh, 64, uh, finally made it successfully, completed the swim successfully uh, at the age of 64 on her fifth overall attempt. She, mm. she made several other failed attempts. Um, and Bonnie was by her side for four of those attempts and, and was the a, a critical factor in getting her across and to the sand on the other side of the water on her uh, on her successful attempt. Um, and and the, the reason they su- succeeded was because their communication and their preparation was so good. Um, you know, it, it, the chapter I really used the chapter to, to say to people, look, all all tough decisions start out in dark water. Right. Yeah. The, yeah. the first thing the first thing someone has to decide to do is is do I need to make a decision here? Is there a need for a decision? And if so, what's the nature of that decision? What are the stakes behind that decision? What's the category of this decision? Because, you know, let's take football. <clears throat> a first down decision has very different stakes from a fourth down decision, right? <clears throat> a first down decision 
is reversible. You've got the second and third down to remedy it. <coughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. A fourth down decision, it's over, right? Different stakes, different thinking. Swimming from Cuba to Florida, you've got sharks, you've got jellyfish, you've got storms, you've got currents, you could drown. All those decisions are very, very high stakes and very, very high pressure. And there was no room for messing around, fooling around. And so Bonnie was a great leader of the expedition because, you know, there was a flotilla of boats. There were shark divers, there were kayaks, there were, you know, weather boats and navigators. And Bonnie had a rule, no sarcasm Mm. because there was no room for a a false tenor, right? Yeah. Yeah. There was no room for misunderstanding. Everything had to be clear and well-channeled and well-organized. And so there was another rule, which was under no circumstances do you tell Diana where she is or how far she has left to go. And the reason for that rule was because there were so many unpredictable elements that if you told Diana Nyad, you're halfway there, you know, it's 150 miles and you've swum 70. Uh, and then a current comes up or a storm comes up, <clears throat> it could it could take her another 40 miles, right? Yeah. And so Diana's focus had to be on, you know, five strokes at a time, literally. At times, Bonnie would just hold up a hand with five fingers and say five more strokes. The focus was so uh, specific and so in the moment uh, that they, they just didn't want Diana to have any information that could throw her off mentally. And as Diana put it to me at one point, she said, you know, you don't say that you've landed on the moon if you haven't landed back safely on Earth, right? So she said that was our thinking, that it's not a successful moon landing, it's not a successful swim until I literally am touching sand on the other side, you know? So that was their, that was their dynamic on the, on the project. Uh, and uh, Bonnie finally breaks the rule on the very last day. Because Diana had to put on this uh, rubber protective uh, suit every night uh, to keep the jellyfish from literally, I mean, they could be lethal, right? Those jellyfish stings could literally give you a heart attack. And so she had to put on this really, really uncomfortable prosthetic for her mouth and this rubber suit that was just miserable for her. And Bonnie finally decided to tell her where she was. She said, Diana, uh, this is the last night you're going to have to put that thing on. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll never have to put this on again. And Diana just looked up. She's so exhausted. And she said, I'm not going to make it. And Bonnie said, no, you're going to finish the swim tomorrow morning. You won't have to put this. You're not going to have to swim through another, uh, you know, sunset. You're going to be done tomorrow. Uh, you're going to make, you know, you're going to make it. Um, because they saw the weather ahead was perfectly calm and clear. And uh, so, uh, so that's the story, and it's a it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful relationship between the two of them, and it's uh, it's a great example of uh, both Bonnie's leadership uh, was was really worth examining and unpacking uh, for people, but also uh, the relationship. Um, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time talking about how the really great leaders have very strong relationships with their people. That was probably the strongest uh, coach to athlete relationship in the book. Yeah. It's got so much. I, I love the breaking of the rule. I love my friend Kim Scott, who wrote Radical Candor. That is the the epitome of radical candor, where the the only way you can be completely truthful with someone is if they know you love them. 
you know, and that, and that, and, and these, these are things that are shown over and over to be true. And the thing is, they're really hard. They are really hard. And, and also because this is a funny thing about, you know, um, the world I certainly live in now, um, having written a book in the, in this, in this, this, this field of performance and, you know, combining my expertise at, at the theater with the work and we've done with behavioral scientists and neuroscientists and all that. There, there is no five step prescription to anything because the context changes and everything else changes. So any, any form that allows you to navigate ambiguity, deal with unpredictability. And that's what you're saying inside this, this, this sports world really emulates how the real world operates. But somewhere, somewhere along the way in, in our businesses, for the most part, and I'm sure you've dealt with this in your world, like no one got, they never got the memo. <laughs> They're still operating as if it can, we can all work like a, um, you know, a, a car factory. And, and that's just not the way human beings perform. Well, so isn't it interesting, the whole debate about like the back to work thing after COVID and the four day yes. work week and, and, you know, the mandatory return to offices things. And, you know, I really think like the people who think you can force these issues are barking up the wrong tree to a certain extent, because mm-hmm. I mean, again, you have to have buy-in from your people. You really have to have, uh, if you want their best efforts, right? I mean, if you're really yeah. interested in, uh, now, if you just want a bunch of, you know, people to, to write, you know, or, or uh, to write junk um, pamphlets or, you know, I mean, if you don't really care much about what you're doing, then you're not that concerned with whether your people are going to perform well or not with a, with a five-day work week or mandatory return to the office orders. Um, but, you know, in, in my business, in journalism and in, in book writing, I mean, I think people's happiness at their work matters greatly. And, yes. and most creative endeavors, I think that's true. Yeah. Um, so, you I interviewed a, a woman, uh, uh, Jean Twenge, who who's a scientist around generations, and she says that every generation thinks the previous generation is soft, and they're not wrong in a certain degree in terms of how you know the the world becomes easier in some ways to navigate. But also there are other factors that sort of come into play uh, with that. And what I'm curious about too, because this you say this in the book. You say, quote, a bird flies not solely because it's mechanically built to fly. It has motive. It seeks. And I think this idea of purpose, you talk about ethics, all these things that that really enter. They're they're a powerful contributor to the peak performers that you're talking about. When did that thing come together for you? Was that early or because for me, it was later. No, it's late. It's, 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 yeah. a, that's a later, more mature uh, view. I mean, so like I, you know, if you study conditioning a lot, I, I learned a lot while I was doing the book about the, the neuroscience behind conditioning and the functionality of a body and, you know, how machines are improvable and so are human bodies. The body's a machine. And so if you move your arm enough in a certain way, you, you'll build muscle and you'll build its efficiency and you'll build the male system between your brain and your body to move it more quickly. All that stuff happens. But something's missing from our explanation. Pure conditioning and efficiency does not explain human performance, right? Any more than it explains an actor. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, so so athletes are like actors. I mean, they are. There is an inspiration in their performance. Yes, um, that uh, that anim- it is ultimately animating them. Um, but that inspiration can't come into play unless they 
they've done all the dirty work behind it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yep. Because uh, it's a craft, right? And I think acting is the same too. Like you have to, or writing. I mean, I can just tell yes. you, as I think writing is exactly the same. Yep. You have to write thousands of stories, you know, to become a more creative writer. You just do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, you have to have written a lot. Uh, I don't care who you are. Um, you have to learn the rules to learn how to break them effectively. You know, uh, it's, and no matter how, how creative you you feel you are, it's ultimately ditch digging. I mean, it is carpentry, like putting something together, putting words on a page and putting them in the proper order in a coherent way, in a way that moves along the readers for the reader's eyes in an efficient way. Um, that's craft. That's carpentry, right? It's not, it's not creativity. Um, so, so, so yeah, it was a later, more mature realization. And the fact of the matter is that uh, people who really love what they do, who would be working at it, even if they weren't getting paid, tend to be better at things. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm friends with Renee Fleming and her, I mean, she does vocal exercises every day. Yo-Yo Ma does scales every day. Yeah. They have to. And and what I talk about, too, with, with people who want to be peak performers at work, it's like it's no different if your job requires you to build relationships, to listen, to do all those things. There are things you can do to practice that. And if you don't, you're good. And if you're and you mentioned this in the book, too, if you aren't conditioned physically, mentally, spiritually, all these different ways to enter these spaces, you are working at a deficit. It, it's just it. And, and you're. You know, and, and, and honestly, too, it's like, I think it's hard for people because it's so hard to do, um, but the payoff is so incredible um, that that sort of lining that up and re- recognizing that that's the case. It's just, a, it's, it's, it's a hard thing if you haven't experienced or have it modeled for you. I, I would go so far as to say that I think that all really good performers uh, have a, a sense of curiosity. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, whether... I, like, I, you know, I talked to Martina Navratilova about this not long ago. I was actually talking to her about the, the greatest matches that she played against Chris Everett. Mm. And I said, you know, I got the feeling when I watched you guys play, there was almost a curiosity at work, right? They were mm. probing each other with shots and they played each other. They played each other 80 times uh, for one thing. So they knew each other's games really well. But mm-hmm. Martina said, yeah, she said there was curiosity because when, when you know an opponent so well, you're, you definitely are exploring, well, you know, what can I do that might surprise her, you know, or what can I do that might surprise myself? Um, and I think, I think for all performance, Pat Summit was very curious about how her team was going to perform and, some of the best seasons, some of the most fun I saw her have as a coach, uh, one of the, probably the most fun I ever saw her have was uh, it, it didn't start fun because she lost her star point guard to a terrible knee injury. And they yeah. thought the season was over. Like they were like, the point guard's the most essential player on the floor. They're the quarterback of the team. And, um, you know, she ha- it meant that she had to really reconfigure the entire team. She had to draft someone who wasn't a point guard, who hadn't been playing the position, had to teach them the position in mid mid season um, as best she could. And everyone else had to kind of make up um, for this lost player. I never saw her more engaged or more interested in her work. Mm. And they, they made it all the way to the national championship game and they lost to the university of Connecticut in the end. But I, I just never saw her more gratified or have more fun at her job. Uh, it was so striking, you know, um, the curiosity that she brought to that. And part of it was 
the challenge, right? It was, uh, you know, it, it asked her to do something new and something uh, uncomfortable, and she wanted to see what she could do with these circumstances. So, so I really do think there's great curiosity behind every great performer about themselves, about their opponent, uh, about what it's going to call up of their capabilities. Yeah. Yeah. We, one of the phrases in our work is you need to replace blame with curiosity. And if you do that, you're instantly, that's a better way to approach. All right. Uh, we always, we always ask our guests to tell us a yes and story. Do you have one for us? Yeah. 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 I said yes to, uh, I was drafted to someone at the office had at the Washington post had the interesting idea of trying to get people from other sections to write, uh, political profiles, um, as a way of bringing fresh, fresh eyes to politicians that had been written a lot about. Okay. And I was asked if I would take on a profile of Hillary Clinton when she was running for president. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I said, yes, because it seemed like too big of an opportunity to turn down. But the end, I said, yes. And I literally told myself, you're really going to scare it out of yourself with this one. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, you're really mm-hmm. going to be uncomfortable. You are really, you're really going to scare yourself and you're really, it's going to be really hard, but it's good because you're going to, you know, scaring yourself is good. You're going to learn new things, you know. Um, And and you did, I I imagine. Yeah, I did. I did. And I I wrote a story that I ended up being pretty proud of. I liked it very, I, I, I loved doing it. I learned a lot. I was just hurled into a completely different, uh, you know, environment and world in, in politics and, uh, so that's my yes and story. Yes, I know you're going to scare yourself to death doing this and yeah. possibly embarrass yourself. <laughs> right, right. I love it. The book is called The Right Call, What Sports Teach Us About the Art of Decision Making. Sally Jenkins, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I appreciated it.